CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. This is Totally 80s, the podcast dedicated to the music of the greatest decade ever. So turn up your Walkman, loosen that scrunchie and get ready to talk 80s with your host, Lindsay Parker. Hi, I'm Lindsay Parker from Yahoo Entertainment and welcome to Totally 80s. We love hearing from you, so why not take a second to follow us at Totally 80s on Facebook and Instagram or email us your comments and show ideas to podcast at totally80s.com. So today's kind of a unique and very special episode of Totally 80s because a lot of times I have kind of roundtables or I have multiple guests, but I have a guest today who has enough stories for one episode on her own. Very special guest with many fascinating rock and roll tales from the decade that we all talk about, the 80s and beyond, 70s, 90s. She's done it all. She's the author of her recently released second memoir, which is called Rebel Soul, Musings, Music, and Magic. She's an it girl, an icon, a muse, and a musician herself. The woman, the myth, the legend, Miss Phoebe Buell. Yay! Whoa, what an introduction. Thank you. This is actually the first time that you and I have chatted. We've been friends on Instagram, social media for a while, but I do feel like I know you already because, you know, a little background for our listeners. We kind of initially met because we have a mutual friend in common who I co-wrote her memoir, Miss Mercy, from the GTOs. She was so special. Sweet person. So, you know, she wrote a memoir, obviously, and you've written two memoirs. The new one is Rebel Soul, but you also had one called Rebel Heart. I don't know. I wouldn't call Rebel Soul like necessarily a sequel to Rebel Heart, but I guess it's a a companion piece. How would you explain the reason why you felt the need to tell even more stories through a second book? I, I wanted to write my own book. When I wrote Rebel Heart, I had a co-writer, not a ghostwriter, but a co-writer, which is an entirely different animal. And it was Victor Bacris. And he had done many of these. He had done several memoirs, everybody from Muhammad Ali to Lou Reed. So I, I really wanted to, you know, have more of my own voice. You know, Rebel Heart was 22 years ago, so they did things very differently. But I just wanted to fill in some of the holes. Some of the stories in Rebel Heart were very edited, so Mm. therefore they sounded very complicated and strange. So I wanted to sort of put my own voice in there and really reiterate how I felt. Plus, I'm smarter now, 20... (laughs) 20 years later, you learn so much. You learn so much about people, yourself, why you did the things you did. Mm. You know, it's just, it's a different time. But I, I wrote it for um, for my daughter. I wrote it for her and for my grandchildren. 
Oh, well, I'm very eager to hear your voice and your smarts and your wisdom on today's episode. So I've read your book, obviously, and, and it has a lot of amazing stories from the 1970s in it about your adventures, you know, hanging with David Bowie, the New York Dolls, Iggy Pop. But as I said, since this is totally 80s, I'm going to sort of lightning round and focus on, you know, the questions about that chapter, so to speak, in your life, the 80s, which was also a very fruitful and fascinating time for you. I'm going to, of course, ask questions about your famous rock star friends and parents and uh, people that you hung out with who were big names in the decade of the 80s. But first, I just kind of want to know how you got into music and got in this path. I mean, you had kind of a, from what I understand, sort of a, a sheltered or quote unquote normal upbringing. <laughs> you didn't have a rock and roll upbringing initially, but, you know, it wasn't long before that was the path you were on. Well, my mother was very, very into music. We listened to a lot of records in our house, a lot of Frank Sinatra, Eddie Arnold. You know, my mother had an eclectic sense of everything. She had gay friends when nobody else in my town had gay friends. And she was an interior decorator, so she was very sophisticated and, and open-minded. So music... I started to hear it at a very young age. And the first artist that really, really hit me was Burt Backrack. When I started oh. to hear, my mother loved those songs in that era. And it just snowballed from there. The Everly Brothers were the ones that turned it around for me. And I used to buy 45s. And I was addicted to every 45 there was. And then when the Rolling Stones and the Beatles came along, like a lot of stories that you hear from people of my age, the first time we saw them on the Ed Sullivan show, it was just life affirming, life changing. And at that moment, my DNA sort of snapped into shape and I figured out why I came to earth. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's let's fast forward to the 80s, because, you yes. know, by the time the 80s came around, you took all of this knowledge that you had and all the kind of life experience you'd already had in the 70s, hanging out with all the people I just mentioned and, you know, having all these romances and stuff. Mm -hmm. And you got together not romantically, but platonically and professionally with Rick Ocasek from The Cars. And yes. you made your first album, which was a covers album, Covers Girl. Was that your first album? It was album? A, an EP. It was four songs. If I had signed with Epic, which was probably what, what I should have done because my manager at the time, Danny Sugarman, mm. he was in L.A. and I was in, in New York. So... He wanted me to be on Rhino, which I don't regret. I don't regret any of the decisions. But if I had gone with Epic, we would have done two more songs with Rick Nielsen. So would have, it would have been the three Ricks, Rick Ocasek, Rick Derringer and Rick Nielsen. Oh, Rick Derringer was involved with Covers Girl as well. Yes, he produced two of the other songs. My Little Red Book, which is a Burt Backrack song, and... Um, Little Black Egg, which was his choice. And that's a, is that an Iggy Pop song? Little no, Black Iggy Egg? Pop song is Fun Time. Sorry that I don't know offhand what who did Little Black Egg. Little Black Egg was a band called the Nightcrawlers. And it was a Rick Ocasek choice. And I write about it in my book. I, I write about why I liked it. I didn't understand what the song was about, really. I thought it was kind of like a guy on drugs sitting in a tree looking at a speckled egg. But it was more, it was a little deeper than that. It had a lot of connotation. Some people thought it was about interracial marriage and mm. 
you know, there was all kinds of craziness around the song. But when I delivered the vocal, I wasn't thinking about what it was about. I just did the lyrics. But Rick, he wanted to do that song. And so, I, you know, I said, OK, let's do it. I have a, a bunch of questions about this period in your life. Number one, you mentioned Danny Sugarman. Is that the Danny Sugarman who wrote uh, No One Here Gets Out Alive and Wonderland Avenue and yes. Madge the Doors yes. for a while, Madge Diggy Pop for a while? Yes, and that's why Ray Manzarek mastered Covers Girl, my first EP, because he was also managing The Doors and Ray Manzarek and their legacy at that time. That's how Ray Manzarek got into the project. But yeah, Danny was a, a colorful character, that's for sure. He was really, really, really gung-ho on getting that Doors movie made. But believe it or not, his first choice for Jim was not Val Kilmer. It was John Travolta. I yes. mean, no diss to John Travolta, obviously, great, great actor. Uh, yeah. But I I mean, first of all, Val was so great in that role. But also, I just don't see John Travolta in that role. He came to Danny's house when I happened to be staying there when I was in town to do business, to do some interviews and things like that. And I actually saw him come over to Danny's house, kind of Jim Morrison-y. And he stood up on Danny's table. And when he sang, it was mind-blowing. He channeled Whoa. him. I guess that's what a great actor can do. He channeled him like nothing I'd ever seen. But because it was a private meeting, and I wasn't even supposed to know that John Travolta was at the house, I, I sort of left and, you know, went and ran around Hollywood somewhere. But yeah, it wasn't as wacky as it sounds. Okay. You know, Miss Mercy was in that, was an extra in that film. They wanted someone who was from that era. You know, she at Miss Mercy yes. obviously knew Jim Morrison, but then yes. they ended up not using any of her scenes. But wow, that's a fascinating story. Wondering what could have been. The 80s were, were wild. It was, uh, for me, it was the beginning of a lot of touring, a lot of live shows. I think my, my EP came out in 81. My first live show was 1980. But the whole concept of me making a record, that all started sort of around the late 70s. Well, let me ask you really quick before I forget, and then I, de I definitely want to ask you about that. But you mentioned how you wanted to be on Epic. There's some story about how you got passed over for Stacy Q or something like that. Oh, no, no, that's the Atlantic Records story. Yeah, they really wanted me to do a dance record, I think. And I just don't have that biorhythm in my body. I'm not even capable of delivering it. You know, I can have fun. I had fun at Studio 54 once in a while, but I'm a rock chick. You know, I, I am not really, I like the Bee Gees. That's about as dance as I get. So, yeah, they signed Stacy Q. And but I had a nice little development deal. I had a very nice demo budget, but I don't think they were interested in a, a girl that really threw down the kind of rock and roll that I was doing. I was influenced by the Flaming Groovies and the Speeds, you know, it was not really what they were looking for at that time. They wanted either pop, like the Go-Go's or, you know, or the Bangles. You know, they wanted that really catchy, melodic pop. Or they wanted the dance stuff. Or they wanted it hardcore, like Joan Jett. But I was a different animal. So you mentioned that by the time you got with Rick and made Covers Girl, 
he pushed, you know what I mean? He's, he went in the studio with the cars and made the tracks and Ben even did a scratch vocal, but I didn't want to hear it. I told Rick, I said, I don't want to hear the scratch vocal because I don't want to be influenced. I want to do my own vocal on this. It wasn't until years later that I heard the Ben scratch vocal. Ben Benjamin Orr from the cars. Yes, you yes, to? correct. Wow. Very cool. So you, but you said that this has sort of been gestated since the late seventies. So it was Rick from the cars, Rick Ocasek, who kind of got it finally happening for you. I He did. Were people not taking you seriously because they thought you were more of a musician's girlfriend than a musician? Yeah, I mean, there was a little bit of that, but I usually changed people's perception if they came to see me live. That has been my saving grace through this entire adventure is that I am a, it's in my heart. It's part of my DNA. So when I perform, it's a genuine thing. My audience feels it. You know, there's nothing fake about what I do. So I think that is the part that kept me going was the, the live part. Because I'll be honest with you, the audience doesn't care about any of the other BS that's so important to people that shape the media. And so, yeah, sure, I got called every name in the book. And um, I think a lot of women do, no matter who you are in, in music. I think it's, and a lot of the women that have really succeeded, like Annie Lennox or Debbie Harry, they had their rock beside them. They had their musical partner that um, gave them support and also encouraged them. And I was sort of on my own. I had my Rick Ocasek, but he didn't tour with me. I had to form my own bands and I had to find my own musicians and let the magic unfold on its own. Well, Rick and you were not ever a romantic partnership, but no. in the book, Rebel Soul, you talk about how he was one of the first people that really kind of, you know, took you seriously as a, a friend and a peer. Can you tell me a bit about that? Yeah, the thing about Rick is that he really surprised me. He didn't do the usual moves that a lot of men in that time did. He was more interested in my lyrics. He wanted to see my poems. He wanted to see my writing. And he even offered to put some music to some of my lyrics. But this started with Steve Bader's and a little bit even mm. with Elvis, Elvis Costello. Yeah. Elvis heard me singing along with, with a squeezed record one day. And he said, you, you know, you don't have a bad voice. He said, when did you start singing? And people don't realize I sung in my school choir. I went to Catholic boarding school and I was the only contra alto in the entire <laughs> school, sixth, seventh and eighth grade. And so I did a lot of solos in the choir because I had a unique voice. Mm. Everybody was either a soprano or an alto, but I was a contra alto, so I could do solos that were a little deeper. Even though I have had a little girl voice, I could sing in both voices, which was strange. I don't know. It wasn't so much a singing voice with me. It was more of um, an attitude. It was mm. sort of what I delivered to a song. You know, if anybody was expecting me to sound like Ann Wilson, they're barking up the wrong tree. And I just have always been inspired by attitude more than technical perfection, I guess you would call it. So 
Well, let's talk a little bit about a couple of the people you mentioned, because, you know, for better or worse, you are known, of course, for not just your own music, but for some of the famous musicians that you either dated or were friends with. Yep. And uh, yeah, you mentioned Elvis Costello. You had yes. a, a quite a, a, from what I could glean from your from your book, quite a, is the torrid the right word? I mean, you had a tumultuous relationship with Elvis. I don't even know what to call it. After so many years, I just know at the time that it felt like something you would read in a romance novel or some kind of complicated, you know, Ingrid Bergman and Ingmar <laughs> Bergman situation. It was just very, very, very filled with drama. And I was very young, so I'm not even sure that if I processed everything correctly. But yeah, I, I, I've had musicians in my life obviously since I was very young and it just seemed natural but I it wasn't like Todd encouraged me very much and you know nobody else I had dated really encouraged that at the, when I was 19 but as I got older after Elvis and Stiv and then when Rick actually did it I you know I started to really realize this was my path I was really lousy at relationships I was a complete <laughs> failure because I really got pissed off when a man expected me to tolerate him being a rock star and me not being a rock star <laughs> meaning <laughs> I don't mean a rock star but I mean the behaviors mm. that were associated with freedom it, it kind of made me angry that people judged you if you weren't completely 100% faithful. Well, what if you were in a relationship where both parties were not 100% faithful? Good point. Good point. Especially back then in the 70s and 80s, which were wild times. They were. And you sort of had to accept a lot of things. And of course... I wanted true love. I wanted a fairy tale. Everybody does. I I don't think it's just exclusive to women. I, I think it's something that humans crave is, is connection and association. But having children out of wedlock was not exactly on the top of the list is the most fashionable thing to do either. And I, I just took a lot of slings and arrows. But on yeah. top of that, I also posed nude at a time when models didn't do that mm. and that changed in the 80s it suddenly became incredibly prestigious and sought after to be in playboy when you were a fashion model and mm. it was john casablanca that agent that sort of turned that all around and i write about that in my book as well yeah. well i'm curious about elvis costello especially since you say that he sort of encouraged your rock and roll dreams but how did you guys meet you're you guys well, dated for some time off and on, at least. We were one of those um, on and off, secret, clandestine, whatever you want to call it. But in the beginning, it was an incredibly public relationship. I met him in Los Angeles, of all places. It was my girlfriend, Pam Turbov, who was a Columbia Records executive. So she worked with, with Elvis. But it was with Pam that I met him. After his Hollywood High School show in June of that summer of 78, we went over to the Whiskey to see the Runaways. Wow. And he did too. So everybody sort of went over there after his show. And that's where we met the first time, through Pam. And then it was uh, 
her car and us driving all over Hollywood and sitting in the parking lot of Tower Records and telling our life stories to each other. It was just a, a natural, a natural unfolding. But the thing is about these relationships, and this includes Todd, because Todd and Elvis were probably the most groundbreaking or the most important to my heart. And of course, Stephen, Stephen was the game changer, mm-hmm. having a child, but nobody was allowed to know that he was Liv's dad. Yeah. So that was very complicated for me as well, because there was a certain amount of honesty that I couldn't share with people. Yeah. And when you talk about how sometimes you were portrayed badly, I will be honest, is when I first heard about the fact that, you know, you had been with Todd Rundgren and that you'd had a child with Steven Tyler, who was Liv Tyler, the famous actress, you know. But it was sort of portrayed that, obviously, I realize this is not true. I want to stress this. But that perhaps you had cheated on Todd, Todd Rundgren, with Tyler Vera Smith, or had betrayed him in some way with some dark secret about the parenthood. Obviously, that's been cleared up since, but that must have been so hard for you at the time. Well, even Todd has embellished that, and it's painful. The thing is, is that I think I explain it very clearly in Rebel Soul, whereas I don't know if it was explained as clearly in Rebel Heart, Mm. Because I had a man writing it with me that saw it from the man's perspective. And that's why I had to write Rebel Soul. Because I had to tell this from the real perspective, my perspective, how I felt. And it was incredibly important to me to be 100% open and forthright. Until you've carried a child and until you've been in that situation, judgment is really not warranted. But I'll tell you, judgment is something that comes along with being a human being, not just a woman. It's Judgment seems to be all through our society and all through our earth. And you just have to carry on. I have people that hate me for no reason. (laughs) So I'll take those slings and arrows if it makes it easier for my daughter, easier for my granddaughter. Um, by the time my daughter started her career, I was wearing a businesswoman cap and uh, kicking ass. And I was her personal pit bull and she needed it mm. because they were coming out of the woodwork. <laughs> but there was uh, obviously just to clear up and I do encourage people to read the whole all the chapters about this in Rebel Soul. But like there was this sort of belief that you had lied to Todd about who yes. lives father's world, but it ties into everything you were saying. No, I didn't lie to Todd. I think Todd and I, I think we went into a fantasy shift. I think, I think I, I wanted it to be that way because I felt more secure and safe in, in that relationship. I loved Stephen very much. And I, there wasn't anything that was going to stop me from having our child But there was never any lying. Lying was not what happened. Mm -hmm. It was cohering to society and what everybody thought was best for live. Mm. And that became my mantra. I wasn't doing what was best for Todd or Stephen or even myself. I was doing what was best for her. Mm. And I'm glad that that's the way I handled it. 
and you know, judgments be damned. I, I there's nothing I can do. You're not going to make everybody happy. I think it's interesting that when sort of the news was coming out about Liv's heritage, and also she was starting to have a career on her own, it kind of coincided with this. And I talk about this in another totally 80s podcast that's all about comebacks. Michael DeBar is on that one. But it kind of coincided with Aerosmith having one of the biggest comebacks in rock and roll history in the 1980s. Their comeback started around, I guess, I would say 88. Was that Mm -hmm. about? That was when Liv found out that he was her dad as well. But this secret of her paternity was kept secret for three more years The public didn't find out until 1991. And that was because I didn't want to hurt Todd. The whole thing just became so complicated. But then it got to the point where Liv was 14. She had to start high school. We had to get serious about her getting a good education. And we were living in New York at the time. And there was just no more time for pussyfooting around. We had to get this thing cleared up. Of course. Not everybody was happy. People were hurt. And I've spent the last 45 years trying to humbly apologize for hurting anyone. But I look at my daughter and how wonderfully she's turned out. We just saw the new cover of her Perfect magazine today. And she's getting ready to do a couple of incredible projects And I'm just very proud of her. And I look at my grandchildren and I think, whatever I did, if it hurt some adults, we as the adults, we can deal with that. What's important is that she came out of this, I'm not gonna say unscathed because there's always pain associated with confusion, but she she handled it and she's a remarkable human being. And I'm just, Mm -hmm grateful for that and you should be proud you obviously did raise her right despite any challenges or scandals and todd's input everybody's input had a good impact i had a very close family my mother my cousin who was raised as my sister the three of us warriors raised her and regardless of not seeing todd very often a todd hug would hold her over for six months. It meant that much to her. So again, congratulations on raising a a wonderful daughter uh, despite any challenges or difficulties you might have. But I want to switch gears because you have so many other stories. This one's actually not in the book, but this one I got to ask about. We've been talking about how you've had men in your life that were also collaborators and supporters of your Mm -hmm. art. I mean, I just want to put out super jealous that you dated john taylor he was the guy that was on all of my pit <laughs> oh he was so sweet and adorable so, je- so jealous i mean good for you but like uh, from what i've read power station a super group that actually at one point michael debar fronted for a little while but yes was- he went on to be the singer and after robert palmer i think he did but i have read that the gestation of power station which was the super group of john and andy taylor from duran duran robert and and Robert right. palmer fronting and, and tony thompson i know what too. you're about to say and yes it's true yeah <laughs> it was inspired by you and like tell tell me the story well john was one of the those people that uh, I met through my friends Blondie and Duran Duran was opening for Blondie. Debbie had invited me to a couple of shows and I met John once again 
LA. It's where I always meet everybody. And it's never backstage. It's never in an obvious situation. This night was at, I think it was, was there a place called Lingerie? Club Lingerie on Sunset. Uh, yeah. yeah, we were all there one night. All the girls in the Go-Go's were there and blah, blah, blah. And then they walked in. Duran Duran walked in and Debbie said to me, oh, there they are. They're so sweet. These are the, the guys that are going to be opening for us and blah, blah. So as soon as Sean and I met, we we just hit it off. We didn't start off as a romance. It, it started off more like just camaraderie. I think he felt very vulnerable. <laughs> I mean, he was literally getting eaten alive by women. I, it was just, he was young and he was innocent. And he was, a. I think I was about six years older than him. So that was one of the reasons why I didn't really dive in all the way. But boy, I had fun. We, we you know, <laughs> I went to a couple of shows with them, traveled with them a little. And of course, with having Debbie there, having Blondie there, I had my my family, my anchors, but it was hysterical. One of the shows that they did with Blondie was outdoors. And I remember we were out all in the back area. You know how you hang out around the trailers and you're in the back area. And I look up and looking out of the window of one of the trailers was Costello. Oh. He was on the bill. Uh-oh. Boy, was that awkward the next night <laughs> when we were all in the bar and Elvis, <laughs> Elvis, I think, wanted to know if I was with John. And at that point, I was sort of with John, but I was trying to keep us as friends. I know most girls will think I'm insane. Yeah, I'm one of those girls. He was so young and so yeah. sweet. And I knew he had so much more rock star stuff to go through. I knew it in my heart. So it was important to me to keep some kind of, I wanted to be friends. I really, I, I adore you. You're insane. John Taylor. Okay. I'm sorry. I, he was just like, he was my like number one heartthrob growing up. Well, believe me, I don't regret anything else that happened. He was beautiful <laughs> and gorgeous and I'm just saying, I wanted to be more than friends with John Taylor when I was growing up. Well, every but girl in America did. And that was, and especially then, I mean, oh my goodness. And he's just a really good person. That's that's the bottom line with John. He's not your typical bad guy. <laughs> he's, not, yeah. he's, not like a, he's not like one of those uh, rock and roll bad boys. He's so, the opposite. But him coming to me with this idea doing a, a record together he said I'll get the band together I'll 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 get it all done and you can come and sing on it he had heard my version of bang a gong that I had done with Rick Derringer in the studio I played that for him and it inspired him he said oh my god you've got to do this song You've got to do Bang a Gong. And because I did more of a hard rock version of it with, with Rick Derringer, not your typical T-Rexy kind of version. We were true to the version, but it was also a lot more, it was tougher and it had a much bigger bottom. But uh, he was inspired by that. That was his idea to, to do it. But uh, I was uh, up in Maine at that time, and he was in England, and our relationship had turned into transatlantic phone calls. 
And I was still madly in love with Elvis. And at this point, Elvis and I had started having a secret behind the scenes that nobody knew about. We were seeing each other again. And I was afraid he would find out. And I told John I couldn't talk to him anymore. <laughs> I'm shaking I know, my just, head. I just don't. I, I know I just it was, don't it understand. was really, really Maybe. kind of crazy. But um, um, but we but it didn't. We did stay friends, and I even hung out with him a couple of times. A couple of years later, when he was in New York, we went to um, oh, what was that place called? Limelight. Mm -hmm. There was a secret room upstairs, and I remember being with him at Limelight. We hung out with Richard Bernstein. We had a couple of nice dinners together. It, and I and, and I'm just so happy for him. I know that he's really happy now and very happily married. And mm -hmm. when I think about him, I just think about that. This beautiful, sweet man. He finally has a wonderful situation, a beautiful child. Mm -hmm. And he's still the most elegant, stylish thing on earth, isn't he? He sure is. But did anything come of professionally of this union like did you ever record anything no together? we it, it never happened it never it never happened and but this you is inspired one, power station that's a yeah, but this was one of the times in my youth that i stupidly shows my love of a man over an opportunity to do something amazing mm. you, you, you know what i mean i i i don't know how many magazine covers i blew maybe 10 because I wanted to go off to Timbuktu with Elvis, with, with Timbuktu and the Timbuktu's. You know, <laughs> I was just mm. one of those girls that followed my heart. I was never, I was never obsessed with my career. That that was, uh, I don't know. I don't know if it comes from my childhood or whatever, but. It wasn't until around 1985 that I started to get a little bit more selfish and a little bit more, okay, <laughs> I formed the Gargoyles. Your band, the Gargoyles. But I, mm -hmm. I mean, I think a lot of women could probably relate to what, including myself, to what you just said, because, you know, I think we've all probably at one time, maybe in hindsight, wrongly put mm -hmm. a man's needs or a relationship above ourselves yeah. or above other things i mean to be honest though you did date some very fascinating men where you know yes. i guess a lot of people would understand why in that moment you may have but we were also young hormones are very powerful <laughs> and when you're traveling in such a circle of beauty I mean, there was just so much beauty i mean some people might not think stiff baiters and elvis costello are beautiful but i'm here to inform them that these men are stunning if you want to date Humphrey Bogart, I mean, it, it's like that. That's what it felt like with Elvis. It, it, it. Now, Stiv, I, I'm not sure who I can compare him to because he's just so unique. Tell me the story about when you first laid eyes on him, which is in the book, because when you first yeah. laid eyes on him, I, I think it might have even was that in L.A. as well? No, um, that was in New York City. And that you saw him at, perform? Uh, I mean, I wasn't I didn't hang out at CBGB's as much in the 70s i went a couple of times i went when i was pregnant to see blondie and ironically i was pregnant or in the early stages of being pregnant when i saw stiv when i saw the dead boys um stiv baiters from the dead boys and uh, yes. later lords of the new church speaking yes. of great speaking of supergroups, i loved them too oh well he was also one of the greatest frontmen that ever lived he, there's just nobody like him i know people compare him to iggy pop 
but I think that he and 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 Jim are very different. You know, I I I, I find them to be very animalistic and passionate, but their rhythms are different. But Steve, um, I I I got talked into going down to see the Dead Boys. We were at this place called Phoebe's, which was only down the street from from um, CBGB's. And I just ironically happened to see the dead boys. I walked through the front door and of course I had to turn around and leave after five minutes because the cigarette smoke was killing me. And being pregnant, I I thought I was going to hurl all over Mm. Hilly's desk. But I did get a a moment of seeing him on stage, which was mind blowing. And then suddenly (laughs) somebody was giving him oral sex as he was singing and I thought well that's the first I'd never seen that before (laughs) I'm sure Jim Morrison would have tried that one if he had (laughs) stayed around but I just thought it was incredibly shocking but I was also incredibly I don't know sort of taken by the boldness and him being up there singing acting like nothing's happening it was Mm -hmm. kind of interesting it was like the ultimate uh stage prop I don't know what it it just it didn't seem vulgar or ugly it seemed almost like when you would go see the tubes or Alice Cooper it it seemed almost poetic it was kind of funny part of the act so I remember leaving um and he just never left my mind you know Steve he he never left my mind I don't I, I don't think it's just because of that I think connections are what they are I do remember he had the bluest eyes I have ever seen. And I had just gone through this huge drama with Aerosmith and Todd and, you know, the whole thing. And here I was pregnant and Stiff had on a shirt with wings on it. And I thought, oh, my God, how can this be happening? The coincidences of life never cease to amaze me. (laughs) Did you dating Stiff Baders coincide with, I think a lot of people were surprised that he dated Martha Quinn from MTV for some time because she seemed like, you know, America's sweetheart or like a girl next door type. And he seemed like this bad boy. Well, he's a boy next door. He's a kid from Ohio. I mean, the real Stiv, you know, he liked to play on the monkey bars with Liv. He wanted a nice dinner. He liked to watch TV. He liked to soak in the bathtub. He liked to fold laundry. <laughs> I, I, I mean, he... He, I think what he found with Martha was a kindred spirit. They really loved each other. Mm. And that was when he tried to set me up with Michael Monroe. He <gasps> called me He called me up and he, he said, I really want you to meet Martha. I want your opinion. You know, we had stayed friends. And so he wa- I always met all his girlfriends. And so I met Martha. We went to a Japanese restaurant and I came with my boyfriend and bandmate Charles Hall from the Gargoyles. And Stiv didn't know I was bringing Charles, so he invited Michael Monroe to come. (laughs) Once again, I'm shaking my head. Michael Monroe is one of the prettiest men I've ever seen. I am a huge Hanoi Rocks fan. I actually did a podcast for Tolly 80s recently. This will never happen, but it was advocating for who should be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And I'm like, Hanoi Rocks, because I think they pretty <laughs> pretty much, I mean, so, there's actually an article in the LA Weekly that says they inspired 
pretty much every 80s metal band on the Sunset Strip in the 80s. They were the prototype. Absolutely. So you and could Michael have dated was, Michael Monroe? Oh my Well, God. I don't know. I mean, he was so charming and beautiful. But he and my boyfriend, Charles, <laughs> started talking shop and Dan Electro guitars and Big Muff Pies and pedals. And they fell in love, sort of. And 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 because they they were talking techie talk, and it it was just kind of a surreal night because Charles and I had to drive all the way back to Maine, which was six hours, after spending four hours in a Japanese restaurant with Martha Quinn, Steve Bader's, and Michael Monroe. And I remember we had to keep pulling over and taking naps on the way back. <laughs> it was oh very God. funny. Not the rock and roll story, maybe you would think. That would be associated with Stiv Baders, but you did see a different side of him. Oh, uh, Stiv was a very, very uh, sweet. He had a, his home sprung the right word. I mean, sometimes the greatest entertainers, they create personas. It was the same mm-hmm. with Alice Cooper. Everybody mm-hmm. thought he was so scary on stage, but off stage, he was like America's dad. I definitely want to ask you about someone else who might have been on my my walls speaking of beauty and beautiful men uh, and also was an influence on duran duran did you date brian ferry that's another platonic relationship of mine we bonded over etiquette because he always had to go to these very fancy events and he didn't want to go by himself but he he would say to me that he didn't know anybody that had enough manners to attend these kind of events. And because of my background, my mother and my etiquette skills, he would always invite me to these industry dinners and events and we would have a ball. And when I was living with Elvis, I think he had left to go play some shows. Brian called me because he needed a date to go see um, Dracula. (laughs) <laughs> and there was going to be a big party afterwards with and and uh, a course of you know a 20,000 course meal he was going to be sitting at the table with some some of royalty so he asked me if I wanted to go and I I said of course and um I think he would have preferred me not be dating Elvis I'm not saying that we never discussed dating because we certainly did but it was all just too complicated. It seems like the Elvis situation complicated a few things El- in your life. Yes, Elvis was the one man that I turned down many dates and many possibilities over. And that's part of youth. I'm not going to call them mistakes because I, I, I feel like everything you do leads you to where you're going to go. And But Brian, I adore him. We had so much fun. We would laugh so hard. We had wonderful times together. He wanted to do a photo shoot with me. I had done this photo shoot with Rod that turned out to be Hot Legs promo. You're the legs and Rod Stewart's hot legs? Have you you seen those pictures of me and Rod where, where, where I'm in the... The fishnets and the legs and then well those that was rod's idea to do those photos and so i was afraid that if i did another photo shoot with mm-hmm. brian that the pictures would get used again for a campaign that had nothing to do with me i wasn't really sure this is just how 
little I understood about, I turned down every chance to be in a video. It's, 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 I didn't want to be considered a video girl. Mm. It, so I, I don't know what I was thinking. Cause I remember when Rick Ocasek asked me to be in the shake it up video, but then we decided that that might detract from me being a recording artist. You had to be so careful what you did back then. Everything you did sort of bled into your image. Didn't you write a manners column, like an, an advice etiquette column? I did. I it was in Japan though. It was it was a Japanese column. I did it for two years. Wow. What was your number one tip for etiquette in the rock and roll world? Because you know, you obviously have great manners if if Brian Ferry's inviting you to, you know, dine with royalty. Yeah, I've done that twice. I did that with Mick once as well, Princess Margaret. But this was a long time ago. I mean, this was the 70s. And um, I think it's important to just be respectful. And if you do not know what to do, say you're at a dinner where you have seven forks and 12 knives <laughs> and you don't know which is which, just Ask somebody, somebody that you trust, quietly and politely. I think people panic. They don't know what to do. But I think the best etiquette is just to be kind and to be polite. That's good advice. I do wonder if some of the people you've talked about or uh, that you've dated, have they written songs about you, to your knowledge? Have you basically been like what Patty Boyd was to Eric Clapton or to George Harrison? Eric Clapton is one of those artists that very openly and very candidly wrote those songs. But then you have other writers like Dylan, a couple of people I've met in my life that that maybe when they write the song, they might give it to you as a gift and they might say, oh, I wrote this for you. But then after you guys break up or you have a, a misunderstanding, they decide that the song isn't about you anymore. It's about mm. somebody else or it's not about anybody. <laughs> that, so, so I've just learned that artistic license is what it is. Mm. If you write a song, you have a right to say who it's about or you, you don't have to. The one song that got written by me was by a young band called Chester French. And they just yeah. nipped it in the bud, called me BB Buell. That was the song. Chester French. I love Chester French. They were, um, I actually interviewed them when that album came out, which had, um, I believe Pharrell Williams was involved yes. with that record. Yes. Yeah. And they, they kind of introduced you to a, a younger kind of, this was like Absolutely. the indie mid aughts era and Chester French. It, came it, around. It, was, it was, it was interesting. And, um, so, so the way I, I, I look at it, the, you know, I, I, you know, Todd can say, can we still be friends? You know, oh, I didn't write that for anybody. But at the time, I think everybody knows that's not true. And that song is what saved me, basically, through the breakup. It, mm. it, it was the salve. It was the Band-Aid because it was so beautifully said what he was able to say in a song. Some of these guys, they are not capable of communicating. And the only way they can tell you how they feel is through their art or in a letter. The art of letter writing has is gone. 
Well, when you are having these transatlantic romances with people on tour or whatever, I mean, that's there was no FaceTime. There was no texting each other. You had to no. write letters. And or if talk you really had an emergency, you would get a telegram. Oh, do you save these? Do you have telegrams? Oh, I have a tele. I have like three from Elvis. And I have the one telegram I got from Jimmy Page that arrived at my hotel room when I was with Todd at the hotel room and the scrambled eggs ended up on the wall. Telegrams were very sexy. When you got a telegram, you knew, oh boy, I better get in touch now. And there was even a time when we didn't have answering machines. Yeah. It was an entirely primal way of communicating. I mean, I can't even, I have stacks of letters from Elvis. I mean, he can... Wow. He can say whatever he wants. It's fine. But these letters, I took a quick snapshot of a few of them for my book. They go straight into a safety deposit box because these these things are history. Someday when we're all dead, I'll let somebody else unravel it. <laughs> but not all relationships, even if there's a beautiful mutual attraction and there's everything, all the working parts that should make it successful. It doesn't work. The universe has your plan. Mm -hmm. So I just look at it now that the relationships that didn't work, the things that didn't work were all leading me to where I am now. I'm a New York Times bestselling author. I'm a recording artist. I'm a grandmother. I'm a mother. I'm a nurturer to my friends and I'm a healer. And these are my jobs. And if anybody wants to call me a groupie, okay. I don't know how to react to that. I don't even know what the word means completely. As I mentioned sort of, you know, a while ago, I did want to get your thoughts, which I think would be a good way to wrap this up about how you did feel about that term, because obviously there are people like Pamela DeBar who really embrace the term. How do you feel about this? I, you know, it's funny because... The word groupie, I, I didn't really hear it that much in the 70s. I was in high school when I first saw the word. I remember they did an article in Rolling Stone, and I just remember these really colorfully, perfectly dressed girls with really extraordinary eye makeup. and That was Miss Mercy and the GTOs were in that arc. It was called the groupie issue and Miss Mercy was on the back cover of it actually. And yeah, that's that was the beginning of a lot of people becoming acquainted with the term. It was all very glamorous and colorful and sweet. I, I didn't see the ugly until later when other people started with the judgments and the finger pointing and the name calling and and, you know, like take somebody like Pamela Jabbar. She was a pretty accomplished actress, from what I hear. Did soap operas and television commercials. And you can't help but wonder, did this judgment that people stuck on her all the time, she could have been Shirley MacLaine. People always have a very misconstrued vision of how I feel about this topic. Mm. They think I'm anti-groupie. I'm not anti-anything except sexist, racist, and Donald Trump. Okay, as far as everything else goes, I, I'm not anti. I think people have to do what makes them happy. But if you're defined by something that isn't even part of your life, it becomes frustrating. I'm, I'm married. I've been with the same man for 24 years. I adore him. 
the last thing I'm thinking about is uh, being with a, with a guy in a band. And I, but also is being with a guy in a band so bad because you know, as I said, I was sort of saying the connotation of groupies that a lot of people have is women who just want to rack up yeah a list of who they slept with or right. And I've always hated that. You know, when we talk about you, when we talk about Pamela, when we talk about Mercy, we're talking about people who had friendships, relationships. I, they were in the scene. I've often said that if the term existed, then influencers would have been a better term. If you're into rock and roll and hanging out at rock shows and loving rock music, aren't you going to end up with people in the business who share passion with you? What's wrong with that? Yeah. Doctors and anesthesiologists often end up together. Mm-hmm. Whoever the hygienist will often end up with the dentist. It's birds of a feather. I've I've always said that. I've always said it. I just feel that we've got to get to a point in life and in society where women are not called names, that we are not defined by a word that didn't even come from the women themselves. Who invented this word? I That's my curiosity. Where did it originate? Was it a journalist who started it? Was it a sexist male? It might have been that Rolling Stone article, but according to Mercy, she just said originally when it first came out, it literally meant someone who's into groups. But why wouldn't a man be a groupie? Why wouldn't a man who really loves the Beatles not be concerned? I know. They call people that like food, foodies. There you go. So if we're going to look at that definition of a groupie, well, then I, I'm fine with that. But the thing I liked about Mercy is that there was a time when I got picked on quite a bit by some of the older g- girls. And uh, Mercy, always on the sly, of course, and and she would always say to me, if you tell her I said this, I'll kill you. you know. And, I, and so I'd be like, don't worry, don't worry. But she always comforted me. She always said, BB, people are just jealous of you. Just realize that, tuck it in your cap, and just carry on. And that was mercy. And she said things to me that I'm not going to repeat them out of respect for her because she asked me not to. And I respect that. But she here's something that she did for me one time. I was in L.A. signing. I had a record come out called Sugar. And I was getting ready to play the Roxy. And I had a uh, record signing. And where I was, it was like this little tiny place, but it was very hip and popular. This was 2010. A couple of doors down, there was a venue where the blasters were getting ready to play. So Mercy, she was walking by and she was being very noisy and colorful and Mercy-esque. Yep. And she had a couple of very colorful people with her and they were waving their arms and you could see them a mile away. And she looked over and she saw me in that record store and she went, baby, what are you doing here? You're here to see the blasters. I said, no, I'm doing a record signing. She said, well, we're all going to be over there. And I said, well, I have to sign these records and then I would love to come and join you. Well, you know what she did? Hmm. She went back and got like 50 of her friends. That's and had her. them come back and all my records sold out Aww. and I signed every one of them because Aww. of her. I love this story. And then I never got to see the blasters because <laughs> um, they drugged me off somewhere to go meet some radio person. But I will never forget that as long as I live. It, 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 it moved me. 
it moved me. And it was kind of funny because they were all in a hurry. And 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 I said, Mercy, thank you. And she goes, yeah, well, we got to go now. You know, she goes, the blasters are getting ready to start. We got to go. And I said, thank you for coming. And she said, you're welcome. You're welcome. And, and she said, we'll, we'll see each other later. But, you know, hmm. we didn't talk on the phone or hang out or anything like that. The, when I would run into her, it would be in unusual situations. And she didn't take sides. Let's put it that way. Well, I'm so glad you shared that story with me. I'll use this as a little self-serving opportunity to say that I, as I mentioned, co-wrote her memoir, which unfortunately came out after she passed away. It's called Permanent Damage, Memoirs of an Outrageous Girl. But she is the glue that brought us together to talk about your memoir, Rebel Soul. So it's all connect. Everything's connected. That's something I've learned from this whole conversation. We've ping-ponged from the 70s to the 80s, from Richard Butler and John Taylor from the British invasion of New Wave yep. to, you know, Stiv Bader to, <laughs> to Danny Sugarman to the New York Dolls to John Travolta from Elvis <laughs> Costello to Burt Bacharach to, you know, what you're doing now. What are you doing now besides, you know, promoting this fascinating book, which I encourage everybody to read? I've got it right here. Well, things got a little weird with COVID. 2020, 2021. That's when I started writing this book. I'm a creative person, and if I don't have an outlet, I, I get very sad, and I, you know, I don't even know what to do with myself. When they announced that they're going to, you know, make a documentary of my life, I had to start going through my my archive, and I started having to find all these photos. They want thousands. You know, there's never enough photos, and I have so many. <laughs> well, before I let you go, I mean, you know, obviously there's so much fascinating stuff I, you know, we've talked about, and there's even more in the book, Rebel Soul Musings, Music and Magic, that um, I encourage everybody to read. But tell me about this documentary. When's it coming out? Who's directing well, it? Well, what happened was I did a show in New York. I mean, COVID wasn't gone, but they were starting to make everybody feel like you could go to clubs again. So I did a show in New York. It was October. 2021, almost 2022, it just snowballed from there. And now Terry Weinberg is now the executive producer, the EP of my documentary, and it's in her hands now. However your story gets onto the big screen, I'm really looking forward to it. Uh, oh, well, thank you, just, you. As you just said, lot of, a lot of life. And it is in the book, Rebel Soul. And, you know, I feel like we only scratched the surface during this epic conversation, but, you know, I'm so happy we finally got a chance to meet in person. Yeah, I'm really happy that I met. I've always loved your pink hair. And um, <laughs> well, I mean, I, I'm always very inspired and moved by women like yourself who just get out there and make an individual path for themselves, wow. uh, you know, where they where they really excel. And you do that and you bring a lot of positive energy to the, to Instagram. So what Instagram did for me is it completely uh, turned my entire public persona and visibility around to the point where my shows are always very well attended. Two pressings of my book sold out before the book even came out. And I, I've I've been able to um, reach a bigger group of people with my art through Instagram. Things are getting colorful again, and 
as screwed up as the world is right now, I have to think positive and I have to try to believe that we're going to move into a better place. I believe that we are shifting to the 5D world. I believe that's really happening. And we are going from 3D to 5D. We have to. It's the only way this planet will survive. And I hope I'm here to see it. I feel kind of privileged to be alive now while we're going through this enormous shift. It's kind of fascinating. Well, you're fascinating. I want to thank you for, I mean, my God, for you to say those those kind things to me is, I mean, you blaze the trail for all of us. So, I mean, thank you. And thank you for this amazing conversation. I mean, I really, really enjoyed it. And guess what? What? You can get my book on Amazon now, not just through my publisher. Good to know. Good to know. I just wanted to let everybody know that. (laughs) I think that's a good note to end it on. Oh my God. And I want to thank everybody who is listening. A special thanks to BB Buell for all of the fascinating rock and roll stories. There's more of them, even more of them in Rebel Soul and Rebel Heart. Pick them both up. And to everyone there listening, thank you. Remember to give Totally 80s some love with a rate and review on your favorite podcast platform. And I'll catch you next time. This was Totally 80s, the podcast dedicated to the music of the greatest decade ever. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Totally80s. And please leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform. Until our next episode, catch you on the flip side.